Hi, and welcome to Cold Turkey Podcast. This week, I'm sitting down with Liz. Liz is actually uh, the further distance that I've had the occasion and opportunity to interview someone. She's from the UK. And uh, what I loved about our conversation is that she tries to recreate um, like an initial picture of you know, a perfect moment that she had and felt the, you know, like the, the, the substance, um, like her consumption of that substance that they was actually, you know, like something that she tried to, my guess is that she tried to uh, recreate in the subconscious matter. Um, and it was, it was so nice to uh, sit and, and, and talk with her. Um, quick note to, uh, Actually, you know, like uh, share the page, share the Anchor uh, webpage where I actually host the podcast. Um, give it a thumbs up, a like, a comment. You can write me at podcastcoldturkey at uh, gmail.com. Uh, and I enjoy every comment that you guys send my way. And without further ado, uh, I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Uh, I introduce you to Liz. Enjoy. Hi, Liz. Hey, Alex. How are you doing? I'm really good today. How are you? I'm doing great. Um, I have to uh, at least tell my audience, where are you from? Because I'm so glad that I'm, I'm meeting with someone from the, for overseas. Uh, where, <laughs> where, where are you right now? So I'm in England, in the United Kingdom. Yep. I live in a really small little town or village. Actually, it's not even a village. There's like 20 houses, um, <laughs> an hour and a half north of London. And uh, yeah, and, and you know, like I'm, I'm going to start the podcast like I do with every one of my guests. You know, like tell me where does it start? You know, like what's your first interaction or contact with actually substance, either by witnessing someone else use of substance or your own? Oh, my goodness. Well, it's interesting. I, I came from a primarily teetotal house. So um, I grew up in the 70s. My parents would have probably a bottle of wine, potentially on a Sunday afternoon with a roast dinner. But it was, it was like high days and holidays. They didn't really drink. And the reason is um, both of my parents had parents who had problems with alcohol. Okay. Did you know these grandparents? No. Well, one of them. Okay. So um, my father's mother, my dad says he called her an alcoholic, um, but I've, I've, I think I've only met her twice and she, and she wasn't drunk when I met her. And on my mum's side, it was her stepfather that drank too much. Okay. And did they fall in kind of the... I would say like the myth or the urban legend of, you know, like those were drunks, you know, like we don't want to be like that. Yeah. So I think, I think both my parents were really keen to ensure that their children's childhood was not like their own. Okay. And so, I've, you know, I, I grew up that we got called in to have tea or you would call it dinner. Yep. Um, if I was out playing on the street, which you could do in the seventies, um, I'd always be called in for dinner at 
at five o'clock and we would sit down as a family and have dinner. And I later found out the reason was my dad was never called in for dinner. And when he was playing on the streets, his mum never, ever called him in. So he, he wanted his children to have a set timetable for dinner. Yeah. So we did. And, and break the chain, pretty much break the chain. Absolutely. Break the chain, break the cycle um, and do something very different to his childhood experience. And, which and was you don't know about this, Liz, at the time. You, of course you don't. Yeah. At the time, you think, oh, my God, I'm having fun with my friends. Why, why am I being called in? I'm the only one that's called in at the same time every single night. Stop busting my balls, Dad. Yeah, I'm <laughs> having fun. <laughs> and uh, what's the fraternity? Your, your single child or the got brother or sisters? Yeah, so I have, an, I have an older brother. He's six years older than me. And my mum says that the only reason I was born was because she was one day, she... Um, she observed my dad and my brother arguing over which chair to sit in in the lounge. And they were arguing and dad was saying, no, that's my seat. And my brother was saying, no, I want to sit there. And mum was like, you know what? These boys are getting really selfish. Let's add another child into the mix. Wow. So the kind of family myth and, and story and fable is that I was only born because of them arguing about where to sit in the lounge and being really selfish. <laughs> and did that older brother became an inspiration, an influence, and a mentor? Or, you know, like, you know, because like, six years is a lot, you know, like in a, in a sense that when you're, when you're five, he's 11, you know, like you're definitely not part of his groups of peers. No. Um, so were you foreign to, to, to kind of his teens and, you know, like, What kind of relation, a sibling relation you had with him? So I was the annoying little sister. Okay, yeah. Um, and I remember when his friends used to come around, he must have been in his early teens. I would, one of his hair, friends had really long hair because he was into heavy metal music. Yep. And this friend of his would let me plait his hair. You can imagine how annoying it is having, you know, a seven-year-old <laughs> plaiting your friend's hair. Um, but I was just, I just, I just loved my brother dearly yeah. um, and wanted to spend time with him. He was, he was fun. He was cool. He was older. He wasn't so cool when Pink Floyd was blaring through his bedroom wall and I was trying to listen to Duran Duran or Wham or something. For sure. In the 1980s, but... Um, he was always kind of like the cooler older sibling. And my brother is hilarious. He is so naturally funny and he can, um, he can imitate people, um, famous people wow. through his voice. Okay. Um, and he's, he's, he's just, he's just hilarious. So I really, I really just loved him and wanted to be with him, but obviously it's not cool having your little sister hanging around you and your mates for sure and it, when he was about i think he left home when he was 17 so i would have been 11 so we didn't live together from me being 11 years old yeah and so what kind of you know like so my guess is that you had like a the perfect picture um family life Oh, my yeah, my childhood was phenomenal. Yeah? 
it really, you know, I'm blessed. I, I've got, two, I, well, I had two parents that absolutely loved me. My brother loved me despite sibling rivalry and fighting, which yep. I think is only natural with any any family. We were very much a nuclear family. My dad was in the Royal Air Force, so okay. the services for yep. until I was about 11. So we moved every two or three years. Okay. So we became this really close nuclear family. So despite my mother being one of nine children and my dad being the youngest of four, it was always as four against the world. Yeah. And that's yeah, yeah. how, how it's felt. We were really, really close. And so my guess is by moving every three or four years, how was uh, your first years of school? I loved school. Yeah. And was yeah. it, you know, because sometimes you know, like when, well, sure, um, when you're tight with that family, um, there's maybe less importance given to like the friendships or, you know, like, you know, like, so, yeah. so, you know, like you, you can't really compensate by the other, but, you know, like there is m most probably a, a relation to, um, you know, like in two years, you're not going to be my friend anymore. I'm going to be an hour away or two hours away. And, you know, so. Um, and of course, this was before social media. Absolutely. This was before yeah. the internet. This was before mobile phones. You know, I remember red telephone boxes yep. that you could put a two pence piece in. You know, that two pence piece went out of circulation decades ago. Um, so this was in, in the era of writing letters to people. Exactly. And when I got, when I got to nine now, when I got it to 11 and we moved, my whole class wrote me letters for my new um, and sent them to my new address, which, you know, unheard of today wouldn't happen. Yeah, because exactly. Because you'd still be connected um, on a mobile device. Absolutely. It's instant, right? You know, like you said, your yeah, son completely. was playing PlayStation 4. He's probably talking with someone from the US right now. And, you know, like he'd <laughs> he's, yeah. right, he's right there next to him, you know, so... Um, yeah, exactly. So, but it, it's interesting. Hindsight's a wonderful thing. I think when you're when you're experiencing something, you it becomes so normal. It was normal for us to move every two, two, three years. When you're in the forces, you're with a cohort of children who it's all also everyone's moving. Move. Everyone does it. You all move, and it's just just how life is, and you just get on with it and you get used to it, and it's kind of expected. My parents were really considerate, though, in terms of when they moved me. So when I got into high school age, I always, I was at high school for three years to do my exams. They moved again, and I was able to do um, what we call A-levels, which is 16 to 18. Okay. So I, my parents were really considerate of my education. Okay. Um, particularly because I, whilst my brother is the hilarious one, I was considered the smart one. Okay. Because I was good at school, I loved school, and despite moving, I became very adept at building relationships with people really quickly and, how, and forging close relationships. How heavy was that label? Huh? How heavy was the burden of that label? I say burden, but it may not be the right expression, but you know, like you said, I was the smart one, my brother was the funny one. Was it an oh, heavy, heavy load to, sh to carry that label? At the time, I, I was quite a precocious child, so I taught myself to touch type age seven. Okay. So my dad had a typewriter, and I got some stickers. I covered up all the keys so you couldn't see the letters, 
apart from I think it was um, a couple of them and he had this how to teach yourself to type book and I taught myself to touch type age seven wow okay because it was fun yeah <laughs> go figure uh, it's it's served me incredibly well actually the fact that I can now touch type but that's a different story um but the label it was it was fine until it became difficult yeah if that makes sense so absolutely there was, there was no burden because I was good at school I was happy at school I did fairly well the burden came when I got older and I was at university and it wasn't fun I didn't enjoy it and I effectively had a mental breakdown and told phoned my parents from university saying I'm coming home and was told quite firmly that no you're not you're staying and yeah so help me you know like and me embark on that on that part of that journey you know like so you 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 said you got your teachings and your schooling in pretty much military base right yeah until I was ill um until I was 11. Yeah. And so after that, you, you, you went, what, to public school? Yeah, yeah. So we have, um, yeah, we have a state school system and what we call private school. Yeah. So I've always been in the state school system. Um, so, yeah, so we, I was, I was, long story short, born in Germany, came back from Germany at two and a half, went back to Germany at five, came back from Germany at eight, and went to a, a, a state school when I was eight, nine years old. Um, but it was in an area where there were lots of forces children. Yep. So quite normal. We had, you know, friends locally that were in the forces because there were lots of REF bases at that time near where we lived. Um, so it was, it was, it was just completely normal, you know, moving school, having to make new friends, being the new girl in class, completely normal. And so at 11, when you join kind of the public system, yeah. um, not only is it a different world, but there's a lot of different shit taking place in, in someone's life. Puberty, um, teen, teen is coming. You know, like the, you know, like you're just <laughs> at the door of becoming that, that teenager. Um, how did you handle that? Yeah, so I was I was always another label I picked up was the good girl label. Okay. So I was always a good girl. I was good at school. I was very sporty. Um, and Liz says yes. Liz always says yes. Liz doesn't say no to anything because I'm a classic. Well, I know this now. There's a word for it. I'm a classic people pleaser. Okay. Um, but I'm also a chameleon, so. I learned to, in every new school environment I was in, and even professionally, I've learned to kind of fit into the environment really quickly. And it's one of my core skills because it's a learned skill from childhood. You have to fit in at school. You have to find a friendship group. Otherwise, you're lonely, you're on your own, and potentially you're being bullied. And you don't have much time. No. You know, like, so by mid-September if you don't have a few friends a couple of friends and you know like you're not part of the clique and you know like you're you're, you're pretty much the outsider for the rest of the yeah. season yeah um so that looks like a pretty well varnished <laughs> life 
<laughs> you see me coming? Uh, uh, yeah, but <laughs> if you'd have asked me this before I got sober, I would have had a completely different perspective. Okay. And me- it's, meaning, it's in- it, yeah, it's interesting. I've, I've, excuse me while I cough. <coughs> um, before I got sober, and before I looked at, at m- me, my life, and my circumstances, I would have said it was really unfair that we had to move every two or three years. Um, How selfish of my parents. Shouldn't I, you know, shouldn't they have stayed um, where we were for longer? And then I remember my sponsor saying to me, wow, so your dad worked full time, supported his family, provided a roof over your head, and... um, For you. (laughs) For you, and you're pissed off that he had to move every two or three years. Oh, and by the way, they didn't pull you out of school midterm. They always found a way to accommodate you. And in fact, you know, when you went to high school, they moved to an area where you could get into what we have a grammar school, or we have a grammar school system, or we used to, whereby if you pass an exam age 12, you can go to a school of other children that have passed an exam age 12. Yeah. Um, So they, they moved to an area and got me prepared through my um, teachers at school to pass this grammar school exam. So I went to a grammar school for girls, age 13. Um, but again, at the time, it was like, oh, yeah. yeah. Before I got sober, I was like very angry about lots of these, lots of my childhood. But I've, I've come to have peace about it because actually I am blessed. Whilst, you know, I, I truly believe that today I, I had a really good childhood. Oh, I'm, really good well, childhood. From, from, from my overseas perspective, <laughs> it looks like like almost like the picture perfect. Sure, with some variables, you know, which was your your, your father's career, but um, absolutely, you know, it looks like almost like a no glitch um, roadmap. Uh, you know, like, uh, but, you know, like I, where I was coming is, you know, like where does it, starts to glitch where does it starts where does that well varnished life of the always say yes cheering happy smiling uh sporty studying uh you know like class eight child when does that you know like well varnished life and when does it starts to crack so it starts to crack when i'm in what you would call high school I'm age 13, 14, and I remember the day really clearly. It was it was a sunny July day. It was the day of the Live Aid concert. Yep. Um, where Phil Collins played in the UK and also he flew over on Concord to, I think, Philadelphia. And I was down the park by a lake listening to it on a radio. It was a really hot day. And... I was with some local friends that I'd made, of which there were boys, bearing in mind I was going to an all-girls school, so I yep. wasn't really with boys in my day-to-day. And there were some local boys there, and someone had gone down the off-license and bought some cider. Hot day, drinking cider, never really drank before, 
because we didn't have it at home. Mum and Dad had a drinks cabinet, but, yep. you know, rarely got opened. And we certainly never drank it. And I was drinking this cider. And I my only memories are being by that lake, laughing, listening to the concert on the radio. And the next memory is waking up in a boy's bedroom with my mum there. With your mum? Yeah. To this day... I have no idea what happened in between being at the lake and ending up in one of these boys' bedrooms. He was a neighbour. You know, I was like less than half a mile from my house. Yeah. And I knew him. Um, But I remember my mum getting me from his bedroom. And I have no idea what happened in between times. And that must be traumatising. I think the mind is a wonderful thing. I actually can't remember what happened now. And interestingly, my mother won't talk about it. Mum won't talk about that day, that event. And I'm now 47 and she's 77. And it's kind of the day that we don't talk about. Wow. And I think what happened is I got drunk. We probably went back to his. I got drunk. His mum probably or dad came home uh, or it was a Saturday and probably said, right, she's drunk. I'm going to call her mother. Yeah. Is probably what happened. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, yeah. Um, and I think, um, I think I got, I didn't get grounded per se, but I was told in no uncertain terms not to spend any time with them again. And being the good girl that I am, I didn't. I cut them because I'm I'm really good at cutting people out of my life because I learned how to do that. Yeah. Because I didn't have that continuation of relationships that kids have today because of social media and the internet. Um, I literally just never saw him again. I also think I was really embarrassed because who wants, you know, when you're 14, 13, 14 years old, who wants their mum to come and get you from a yeah. boy's house? No, exactly. Yeah, that's, that destroys the flirting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, killed it. Um, killed it. What kind of a, do you remember the aftertaste of the of being quote unquote high that day? You know, like do do do, do you remember like like kind of remembering that that afternoon, despite the the you know like the traumatizing waking up with your mom there, you know like. Did you keep an aftertaste of, ooh, that was that was cool? Yeah, so I have euphoric re- recall on that day. There's something about sunshine, water, and cold, fizzy drinks yeah. with alcohol in there that, that stuck with me. Okay. That, that's a, and music, and that's a happy place. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Literally being outside, having some music playing, being by water, being you know, being with friends, laughing and joking and drinking is happy. For sure. Yeah. And I think I, I my brain forgot the rest of it because it's, because I wanted to remember the happy piece. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Why would I want to rem- remember the other bit? The, no, you know, no, no. The embarrassment. And, and as addict, <laughs> we're, we're, we have a great filter of, you know, when we puked out, that booze, you know, or whatever, or we crash the car, but we remember, you know, like the ride before, you know. So, so yeah. as addicts, we're we're 
we have a great filter of shit. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> and 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 you know, tend to say, Oh, it was an happy night. You know, he's like, Well, not really. You, know, you threw up in the cra- trash can and you know, like you you know, like you blacked out and you know, the fucking bust up, you know, and, and you know, so yeah, I mean but what happened next? You know, like what what when was the next time you actually either had a drink or you know, like did did you became like thirsty after that? You know, like did did you get no. like no a thirst of you know like recreating that or no? So the next time I got drunk was the next time I drank. No surprise there. Um, and I was about fifteen years old. I had some girlfriends over for a sleepover. Mum and dad had left the house unusually. I think mum might have been working and dad away. And we raided their drinks cabinet that rarely got opened. Um, and Whose idea was it? Oh, mine, of course. Yeah? Oh, yeah, of course it was. Because I, I was being, I knew I was being naughty. Um, but I knew I was safe because I was at home. Yeah. And... We opened, I remember concocting a drink from all of these various spirits that, you know, it was the 1980s at this point, and they probably had been purchased in the early 70s because some of them still had the German um, price labels on them. So we were we were taking bits from each, and we had no mixers. So I said, oh, well, we'll mix it with milk. Wow. Go figure. Yeah. So um, one of my friends and I, we're still friends today, actually. Um, drank this stuff, and then I think she got really ill, and I was really ill. But we were old enough at this point to kind of hide it. Yeah. You know, we filled up some of the bottles of drink with water, so you couldn't see that they'd gone down. Yeah. The old, the old trick. And of course, because mum and dad didn't drink, they would never notice. Um, and that was probably the the next time I drank. But it, but that experience again ended with feeling like shit. Yeah, exactly. The express experience was oh my god, humiliation and embarrassment. My mother's had to pick me up, um, and then dealing with what must there must there were consequences. I just can't remember them. I think, as I said, I was effectively grounded and banned from seeing this boy and others. And then the consequence of of drinking this mixed drink was it it tastes awful i don't like it and i've thrown up and i hate being sick yeah so i then didn't start drinking again until i was 18 years old and the legal age to drink in the uk is 18 yeah i was allowed into pubs when i was 17 but mum and dad said you can go to the pub but you can't drink and I was like, fine, I, I can go to the pub and not drink. And then when I did start drinking at eight, at 18, I think I had the very occasional drink before then. It was like, wow, all bets are off. I can now drink. Yeah. So guess what? I drank really, really well because I'm a good girl. And if I do something like learning to type, I do it really well. You're going to be good at it. And I was really good at it. And I got, you know, I would only drink on the weekends because I went out with friends on the weekends. But, you know, one drink was never enough. And once I started, I wouldn't stop unless the money ran out, the boyfriend wanted had had enough of me and wanted to take me home. 
Um, a girlfriend would say, come on, love, you can't walk. Let's get out of here if we were in a nightclub. Um, or Blacking out, I guess. Yeah, or blacking out, yeah. And so almost immediately your your first drinks at 18 were abusive completely completely I, i mean i i've never had a rational relationship with alcohol because it was all it was almost like the forbidden fruit as a child yeah exactly yeah um my first recollection is this euphoric day and it was a huge day um live aid in the kind of life of a teenager yeah. You know, all of your favorite bands are on. It was an iconic day. You know, historically it's an iconic day, but at the time it was like, wow, this is amazing, part of something really big. Uh, and I'm here having fun with my mates on a day I will never forget. And I, you know, I've never forgotten it, but not for the right reasons. <laughs> um, yeah, so, so then once I, what, what alcohol did for me when I was an 18-year-old girl, is it made me feel prettier. It made me feel funnier because I'm not the funny one, remember? Going back yep. to that label, I'm Absolute. the smart one. Yep. So it made me funny. It made me pretty. It made me taller. It made me more confident. Less nerdy. Less nerdy, less geeky, and much more fun. Yep. So, And it made me feel great. Also, I was I was about to say, aka a bit trashy as well. You know, like punker. You know, like the when I say punk, I don't mean in the in the in the clothing style, but you know, like in in a in a in a rougher way. No, yeah, I was being naughty because by this time I knew that my my um, dad's mum had had you know was an alcoholic. Yeah. Um I knew that my mum mum's stepfather had a drink problem it, um so i knew by this point my parents reason for the childhood that we had around drinking specifically and, and the fact that there wasn't much drink around us and of course you've got to rebel somewhere as a child yeah and i'd been such a good girl up to this point it had to break it had to break and So I became the girl that would go out a lot, would drink a lot, would meet boys a lot. Um, and when I went off to university, oh my God, you know, I'm not living at home. I've got my own money. I can drink when I want to. All L breaks loose. <laughs> yeah. And, and actually, I, I believe today that God put me in, circumstances that kept me safe in terms of I, I went to college in Cambridge the famous university town and I for the first nine six six seven months I had to cycle into the university and it was a good 25 minute cycle and I was the friendship group that I had we were all kind of displaced around the city so I had to cycle everywhere to get anywhere and because I was quite nervous of cycling, I actually didn't drink that much yeah. for that first six months. But after six months, I moved on to what you would call on campus yep. into student accommodation. Oh, by that point, oh my God, I'd broken up with a boyfriend that I was um, 
with when I was 18. And it was like, whoa, here, let's go, baby. Yeah. And I just went completely bonkers. What was your what was your professional path or your academic path? You know, like where you know, like where did you see yourself in the future at the time? I had no idea because I was supposed to do really well at school. And because I'd met this boyfriend who I'd continued through that relationship into university, I was supposed to go off to university to do geography. Okay. But I didn't get the grades that I wanted. So I got into the only course I could with the grades that I had, and I ended up doing business and finance. Okay. Which was not where I was expected to be. I was supposed to be doing geography. And the only reason I wanted to do geography was because I like volcanoes. Okay. Stupid reason for going to university, but because I like volcanoes, I thought I'd like to do study geography. So I, I didn't get the exam results that were expected my dad was really cross because i'm so smart and it was because i'd stopped trying i'd started going out with this boy i was going out partying at the weekends and drinking so dad was not happy that i didn't get the grades but he was happy that i still could you know i sorted out where i was going to go and i found somewhere um so he was and it was quite local so in that regard it was kind of okay but that disappointment had kind of set in. Yeah. Because do they know about your kind of your drinking pattern by that time? Oh, yeah. My dad, when the boyfriend started to turn up and drop me off and then he, I would invite him in, my dad would be at the top of the stairs in his pajamas saying, Lizzie, come on, it's two o'clock. It's time to go to bed. Bit of a passion killer, isn't it? When you know that your dad's <laughs> going to walk into the lounge with his pajamas on. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, did you have like the the next morning talk where you know, like, oh, Lizzie, you know, like you need to be careful, and you know, like I saw that you were, you know, like not walking straight yesterday evening, and so on and so yada yada. Not really. I think they were, ironically, they were more concerned about me getting pregnant than my drinking okay which which makes sense you know like i have the daughter but you know it makes sense yeah and, and, I, and to be to be to be honest they were right <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean you're like you know like I'm, I'm more worried that my daughter gets pregnant mm. than she does get drunk until you know how, how pretty much you know how deadly that sickness is right you're like you know like one in another you know like you 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 better to have none but you know like um yeah i mean you know you get you get where you get where yeah, i'm I going do. yeah I do. <laughs> um so so university campus all hell breaks loose i guess the study takes a hit on this right well actually the study i really again i really you know i love school i loved the studying and because I did much more of a vocational course, and it was about the doing rather than academic, you know, research and reading and all that boring stuff, we were doing things that I found interesting and fascinating. So the first year I, I kept that up, I was on what we call a sandwich course. So one year at university, one year at work, and then one year back at university. So the middle year, it was 1990. 91-92 the Gulf first Gulf War had was happened 
happening. There was a recession. I managed to find a work placement in my local town for six months. So I came home to mum and dad for six months. Um, and I had to get up for work every day. So my partying was only at the weekends. And then after that six months work placement had finished, I had another six, seven months before I had to go back to uni and I had had nothing to do. So I foolishly told my workmates that, oh, I'm going on a kibbutz to, in Israel. And it got round, I was leaving the, that um, work in the February and it got round to Christmas and I hadn't done anything about it. And because I, I'd kind of been a bit bullied whilst I was there, even though I didn't recognise it at the time because I'd never been bullied. I just thought they were just mean women. And they were mean women, but they also, I, I now understand, were actually bullying women. Um, so at the Christmas time, I'm like, right, mum, so I need to go to London to this office to get myself onto this kibbutz volunteer programme. She took me. Um, and then in the February, what, six, seven weeks later, I'm on a plane going to Tel Aviv on my own, age 19. The boyfriend that I'd had through school and university, I'd said goodbye to him because it was getting quite annoying. He was kind of, whilst I was at university, I wanted to you know, experience university life on campus, shall we say. Um, so I ditched him um, and I was going to Israel on my own for an epic adventure. Where, and it was. Where you, did you see any part of the world before that? That was your, was that like your first trip? My first trip alone. Um, but I'd, I'd been on a school trip. We went on a cruise, excuse me, I'll cough. <coughs> We'd been on a school trip around the Mediterranean Sea. So we'd been to Egypt and seen the pyramids. Um, okay, so you had seen these regions. Yeah, so I'd, I'd, I'd kind of seen it. And yep. I'd, I'd, I'd done no research watch whatsoever. It seemed like a good idea. I'd heard of people that had done them. And I was like, oh, quite fancy. Oh, and I'd been to Israel on that on that cruise. Yeah, I'd yeah. Been to, I had been to Israel on that cruise. I'd been to Jerusalem. And I thought, oh, I've been there. That'd be quite nice. I'll go do that. And the university agreed that me volunteering on a kibbutz could count as credits towards my yep. work placement. So off I went to Israel, um, and there, my God, it was less than two shekels for a beer. Cigarettes were really cheap, and the boys were in abundance, and I had a phenomenal time. And I'd had an AIDS test when I arrived, because they used to um, give you an AIDS test. Um, so I knew I was clean, and, yeah, I had lots of liaisons shall we say and my my drinking was again um on the weekends primarily but one day i remember we, we used to finish i think early on a friday and we used to get the bus into the local town below bearing in mind the kibbutz is on the lebanon border and two weeks before i arrived Katusha missiles had been going over the kibbutz into the, into the town below. Yeah. So we'd get, um, I got the bus Dip down Typical there. Friday for these guys, but then yeah. necessarily for us. 
exactly. <laughs> so I got the bus into the town, into the local town with all of the other volunteers. We would go and get falafel and go to a bar and drink beer. And again, like had happened so many times before, it got to a point where they all said, oh, we're getting the bus. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, fine, bye. But on this occasion, I missed it. And I'm at the I'm at the bottom of this in this valley with the kibbutz, you know, as the crow flies, it's about, you know, half a mile up up the mountain. But, you know, walking, it's about three miles up um, a really zigzaggy road. And I'm like, oh gosh, how am I gonna get home then? So I decided my wisdom that the best thing to do is to to do the one thing I, I promised my dad I wouldn't do, which is to hitchhike. Hmm. So I have a thumb. I decided to use it. And bearing in mind, I'm a young woman on her own in a country where she doesn't speak the language, even though their English is impeccable. Sounds like a great plan. Great plan. And of course, it's what sounds like an even better plan is to get in the car that stops and you tell them where you're going and they say, oh, we can take you up there because there were two kibbutzes on um, one on the way to ours and ours at the top. And they said, look, we're we're going to, the, to, to this one, the one before yours, but we'll take you up. And of course, in Israel, kids my age have guns because they have national service. So every, mm -hmm. you know, you got, on the, you got on the buses, all all the people my age have got, you know, rifles. They carry, yeah. Because they're armed. So I get in this car with three three blokes and their rifles, and it only occurs to me as we're going up the mountain that this probably wasn't the best idea in the world, Liz. Mm. Probably not a good idea. Bearing in mind, I can't really, I can't, you know, hello. Three you men. can't fan. You can't fan for yourself in any shape or form here. No, exactly. But again, you know, God was looking after me that day because I got to the top of the mountain. I got to the kibbutz. I got in safe, and I had a great story to tell. <laughs> you know, because they was there. We had a bar on site that only the volunteers went to, and of course, I went there, and I was like, "Oh, I missed missed the bus. Oh, it's fine." And of course, what did I do? Carried on drinking. Because yeah. that's what you do. Wow. And I think this is this is one of the myths that I think there is about alcoholism, is that you have to, you know, not every alcoholic, and my experience of being an alcoholic is, is not prison. It's not, you know, hospitalization apart from, actually that's a lie, apart from the, the treatment centre I went to was actually technically a psychiatric hospital, but we'll put that to one side. But, you know, I, I didn't end up in prison. I had a, at the end of my drinking, I had a phenomenal job. I was incredibly well paid. I was keeping the wheels of my life turning. They were about yeah. to fall off. But through my drinking, you know, even in those halcyon days of being 19 and doing stupid things like hitchhiking, on the Lebanon border, you know, I, I was always kept safe. And it was like, girls like me aren't alcoholics because I'm smart. I'm, ed I'm fairly well educated. 
I have a great job. I've got, oh, I've got a great career ahead of me. I only drink at the weekends. And for a lot of years, that was true. Yeah. Until it wasn't. Let's get there. You know, like when, you know, like, do, 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 can you remember the, the first seeds of waking up mornings and asking yourself, is this life? Yeah, I can. So fast forward from 19, um, I end up through business and finance in the tech industry, completely by accident, working for some phenomenal tech brands in their infancy. Um, So I get married. I marry a man who I love dearly. And because I did well at school and university and because I'm a chameleon and can adapt place into situations and places really well I did really well in the corporate world because I can turn it on when I need to so everything on the outside looked phenomenal you know I had great job I was always getting a new car it was always a German BMW picture perfect you know, it was it was it was the dream. And then we had our son who's now fifteen. And what should have been the happiest day of my life, and it was, had a tinge of sadness to it because I got told on that day that he was a miracle. And I was like, Oh yeah, he's a miracle. Because we you know, we'd we'd been married six, seven years before we no, five years before we had him. And I had to have an emergency cesarean section and the the surgeon handed me my baby and said, you've got a beautiful baby boy. And then 20 minutes later, they're still down there doing what they need to do. And I'm like, this is taking a long time. Not that I know how long this takes. I'm as high as a kite because of the drugs that they'd given me. And the Someone comes up to me and says, your your child is a miracle. I said, I know. Isn't he beautiful? And he said, no, he really is a miracle. And he drew me a picture of my uterus, my ovaries, and my fallopian tubes. And I have something that is called a unicornuate uterus. So I have a unicorn inside of me. So basically, your uterus is supposed to be symmetrical and your fallopian tubes and ovaries. Yep. Mine isn't. Half of mine are perfect. The other half are about a tenth of the size they should be. So the fact that I carried a £7.11 child to full term and over with no medical intervention, nobody spotted anything, is an absolute miracle because statistically that child should not have survived. Then what happened is I, I... then had four miscarriages, very early miscarriages thereafter. And with each loss, I lost a part of me. And I was, I felt like I was being punished by God. I'm going to try not to cry. Yeah. Because I felt like I'd done something wrong and that he was, this was his way of punishing you 
by saying, here's one beautiful child. Be grateful you've got him, but you're not having any more. And each loss of a, a baby thereafter, another part, a little part of me died each time. Plus some rocks on backpacks, right? Like I, I you know, like kind of carrying this. Yeah. And of course you don't you don't want to say to people, you know, when you when you lose a baby and it's six, seven, eight, nine weeks, that's normal. This happens, you know, there's a reason people say don't tell anyone you're pregnant before twelve weeks. Yeah. Because statistically, if you're gonna lose a baby, that's when you're gonna lose it. Yeah. And then you know, I was I was never showing. I was never, you know, we'd, we'd never disclosed it to people. So it was it was always something that I carried myself. Immediate family knew, but it was something that I felt like God was punishing me for being a bad person, and that's why we couldn't have any more children. And I was really angry, really angry with God. So amongst all of this loss, by this point, I'm not just drinking at the weekends and I've not been just drinking at the weekends for a very long time. I drank probably every other night, if not every night, apart from, ironically, I stopped drinking as I found out, as I got pregnant with my, my son and I didn't start drinking again until he was about eight months old because... I knew, well, I, I couldn't count to three when he was born because the sleep deprivation was that atrocious. Yeah. Put a drink on top of that. I mean, I just could, could not have coped. But about eight, when he was about eight, nine months old, I started drinking again. Um, and it was very occasional. And then, you know, if someone was babysitting, I'd go a bit bonkers or my husband wasn't at, at work the next day. I would say, you're in charge. I'm, and I'd basically get drunk. But after each loss, it was it was the only thing I could do to shut my head up, to numb my emotions, to cope with a stressful job. And if you had my job, you'd drink too. Yeah. If you had my life, you'd drink too. And then it all kind of came to a point. My drinking accelerated again because it's progressive. Yeah. And, you know new level, new devil. My dad was diagnosed with cancer and within 18 months, he'd passed away. And that's and in the midst of the miscarriage? After the miscarriages. Okay. So I'd had these, this loss and I love my dad to the moon and back. He was, I had always felt connected to him because we were really similar personality wise. Yeah. And I looked up to him. I adored him. Um, and when he died, I was actually in the, in the, in the hospital with my mum and we literally had, to, he went into a hospital for the last, we didn't know this at the time for the last time on boxing day, 2012. And he died on January the 2nd and we were told, I think on the 27th, 28th, that he had a day to live and darn him, he didn't want to go. He was, his heart, he was so 
who was so physically fit, his his heart just didn't want to give up, even though his body, the rest of his body was shutting down. And my mum and I stayed in that hospital from Boxing Day until the 2nd of January. Um, and we came home the morning of the 2nd of January because the hospital said, we don't think he's going to die until you've left. And I, again, ironically, we get home. We, Mum and I both have a shower and a bath because we haven't slept at all, really, during those days because there were no beds. We literally were in chairs, sat with him or on the sofa that they had in one of the family rooms. And we got the phone call to say that he'd passed away. And on that day, I think that's when I broke. Yeah. And because I'd not been drinking, because I'd been at the hospital being the good girl, I just started drinking. And I don't think I stopped well, I didn't. I didn't not go a day without a drink after him dying until I stopped nine months later because I couldn't. And so, before that, um, were there? You know, like, did you have any indication, or well, for sure, in, in night sight, But you know, like at the time, do you remember kind of? Um, guessing or, or, or not self-diagnosing, but, you know, kind of looking at yours or your consumption or your use versus someone else's use and say, well, you know, like that, that may be too much or, you know, like we're there, you know, like we're there's again, you know, like looking back, it's easy, but, you know, like at the time, do you remember having kind of that, you know, um, talking to yourself conversation saying, well, that's that may be too much or that may be. Well, my, my husband is also a drinker. No surprise yep. there because why <laughs> on earth would I have wanted to have married somebody teetotal? Yep. I wouldn't have done. So my, my husband drinks. It's up to him to diagnose himself as far as I'm concerned as to whether or not he's an alcoholic, but, you know, he can stop when he wants to. Um, unlike me, I don't have an off button. So we used to drink together. I was his drinking companion and he was my, actually, he was probably actually my drinking companion. Um, and it was only, you know, even on those occasions when, before my dad died, when I was going to a work do, I would drive so I couldn't get drunk and I'd only have one drink so I could get home. And I would end up phoning saying, oh, I'm going to get you, I'm going to get a taxi home. It's like, what about your car? Oh, we'll get that tomorrow. You know, I've done that so many times. Yeah. That was kind of normal. Um, but it was only when my husband said to me, don't you think you're drinking a bit too much? And I'm like, pardon? I said, I drink as much as as, as you do. He's like, no, you don't. You drink more. I'm like, no, I don't. Of course I don't. But slowly but surely he kept saying to me, you're why don't you just, he would say like, why don't you just not have a drink tonight? I'm like, well, why, why would I want to do that? <laughs> I'll just have one. And by this point, um, my husband had taken redundancy because I earned a lot of money. We didn't need him to work. He was primarily the responsible for getting our son to and from school. Um, so I'd created a life where I could do exactly what I wanted to. Yep. 
and I was the breadwinner and I controlled the family finances because I earned the money and I created a support system so that it was all about getting Lizzie to be able to get to work, do her job. I created a support system whereby I did none of the housework, none of the cleaning. Um, we had a cleaner. My husband did the ironing. Um, and you could get hammered. And he did the cooking, so I didn't even have to cook. And I trained him so that there was always... You know how people have a kettle with a teacup next to it with the sugar and the tea in it ready to pour the hot water on? Yeah. I trained my husband to have my wine glass ready, full. So I would literally walk in the door, knock back a glass of wine, um, and then I'd be able to talk and say hello. And that became wow. completely normal in our household, as did drinking that bottle of wine in 20 minutes flat before dinner. And that was just for... Uh... For starters. Yeah. Yeah. And, but because I didn't drink vodka or spirit, because I was, I didn't wake up in the morning drinking. Or shit-faced. I was hungover and I felt like shit. And, oh, I would, well, and I started waking up at three in the morning. That's pretty much defines as shit-faced. <laughs> yeah, three in the morning waking up. Um, With the trebles? The, the trebles? No, do you know what? I never had the... I never had that, but I would wake up at three, four o'clock. My head would go completely bonkers. I would down um, some Red Bull and try and get back to sleep and then invariably wake up late, drink more Red Bull um, and get my ass into the office eventually. And because I was effectively the boss of my team, I'd orchestrated my work life to support my drinking. So it was quite normal for me to have meetings down at the pub or in a restaurant with a meal because it's socially acceptable when you're working to have a glass of wine. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Um, so I would always make sure there was food. Um, and of course, I knew I had to drive home and I didn't want to get done for drunk driving because... You know, if you're if you're an alcoholic, you would get done for drink driving, wouldn't you? But hello, I'm a good girl. I don't drink that much. Well, I'm safe. So I would wait until the evenings. <coughs> Excuse me. And most of my drinking was in my back garden on effectively a bench underneath a gazebo. And... You know, the only reason I'm not a park bench drinker is geography. Just that my park bench was in my garden, not someone else's or not in a yeah. park. But I was the epitome of a park park bench drinker. But I didn't know it at the time. When does it stop, Liz? When does it break? So... Remember how I keep referring to God keeping me safe, even though yep. I I was really angry with him during that period um, of the miscarriages. And also, actually, earlier when I was 15, I was really angry with him, but that's a, that would take far too long to tell that story. I... I went to... 
I'd seen a life coach before I um, before my dad died. And I saw her after he died, about three months after. And I went to see her, I was in a right mess. And I said, I think, I think I'm drinking too much. And she said, oh, Liz, darling, your dad's just died. It's okay. If you need to drink right now, you know, that's what you need to do. It's part of the grieving process. And I was like, right, okay. So she said it's completely normal. Okay, it's completely normal. So she gave you a license for it. License. Complete permission that this was okay. Um, I My mum lived um, two hours away. My brother was 20 minutes down the road, but... I didn't. I never called him. I wasn't. I wasn't particular. Oh, well, actually, I was really not particularly nice to his wife. Um, and we didn't have much of a relationship at this time. So the only people that knew about it was my immediate family. In my house, which was my yeah. son and my husband, and because my my husband was always there, he was able to protect our child. But. We went on holiday that the summer after dad died and we took mum away with us for two weeks. And bearing in mind, this is the woman that likes to eat at a certain time every night yep. because she was married to my dad for 50 years and that's what they did. They ate at a yep. certain time. Granted, it got later as we grew up. So she wanted to eat at a certain time. But I wanted to get, I wanted to drink. And of course, really well-trained husband. We'd found the local shop. We purchased the booze every day. He'd go and get some, and we would. Um, I would drink in the hotel room before we went for dinner, and it started to get later and later and later and later that we were going out for dinner. And one night it got to ten o'clock. It was also my mum and husband's birthdays whilst we were away. Um, quite frankly, the holiday was interrupting my drinking, and it wasn't terribly enjoyable for me. And mum had started to notice exactly how much I was drinking. And I was quite mean. Come back from holiday, fast forward a few weeks. I'm left in charge of our son for the first time. Alone for the first time in, I can't remember when. I had my glass. I took him up to bed. At this point, our son would only go to sleep if you laid down next to him because we trained him to do that, foolishly. Um, so I read him a story, lie next to him. He's in his room, which is supposed to be a child's safe haven. And I'd left my drink downstairs, the bottle, and I was really pissed off. And I was like, this child would not go to sleep. And I was not prepared to sit and lie next to him, because quite frankly, it was interrupting my drinking. So I tried to have a sensible conversation with a seven-year-old. However, I wasn't being sensible. And it ended up with me screaming and shouting in my child's face. And I will never, ever forget the look of terror and fear in his eyes with me literally screaming in his face to shut up, to go to sleep to stop being a baby, to, I can't even remember some of the things that were coming out of my mouth. 
to just shut the fuck up basically and let me go downstairs and drink. And my miracle baby, the one that if you would put me on a lie detector test, I would tell you that I love to the moon and back. Had this look in his eyes of sheer terror. And I saw for myself reflected in his eyes, the monster that I turned into because he was literally pulling away from me, scared witless. And in that moment, something switched inside of me that said, this has to stop. This has to stop. And a couple of days later, um, I phoned a psychiatrist that I'd met before because in all of my drinking days, I'd seen a psychiatrist in 2000, um, 2007, same psychiatrist, and I, I saw him again in 2013 on the 26th of September. And I said, I'm really depressed. And he's like, oh, okay. So we've been here before, Liz. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, I know. He said, now how much are you drinking? And I said, I'm drinking three bottles of wine a night without fail. And sometimes more if I drink in the daytime at work. And he said, well, we're not going to know if you're depressed until you stop if drinking. You, because, you yeah, know, alcohol's you depressant. Drink. You know, we're not going to know if you're actually depressed. And I said, that's the problem. I can't stop drinking. And he said, well, let's fix that problem first. And then we'll find out if you're depressed. Hmm. I went, okay, how are we going to do that then? He said, well, we have an addiction program here. It's residential. You come in for 28 days. And you can stop that way. And I went, okay. But where am I going to sleep? And the princess inside of me would not check myself into treatment until I knew exactly which room I was in, as if I was in a hotel, in a five-star hotel, choosing which room, which suite I was going to have. But luckily, I met another angel that day. Um, it was actually the leader of the treatment programme. And I didn't know it at the time, but she effectively 12-stepped me as we were looking at rooms. Um and I said, yep, I'll come in today. I phoned my best friend who was two years sober. I'd gone with her to an AA meeting to collect her two-year chip. I thought they were all a bunch of loons, thought it was completely bizarre, didn't understand any of it, um, but was happy that she was happy. She'd done her step nine amends to me. I was drinking at the time, of course, because... I always drank, but she found a moment of clarity. And I was like, if she can do this, I can do this, the stop drinking thing. So I went home, walked through the front door and said, I'm an alcoholic, I'm going into treatment. And my husband was like, oh, okay, um, when? 
are like two hours. The best friend is picking me up and taking me there. And our son was at school. So I said, let's collect him half an hour early, tell him that mummy's going away. He'll be excited, it's a Friday, he'll be leaving school early, he'll be happy. Phoned my mum, who was two hours away, and said, Mum, um, I'm an alcoholic. I'm going into a treatment programme for 28 days. And she said, I'll be on the next train down. And I said, but Mum, I'm not, I'm not going to be here. And she said, it's not for you, it's for the boys. Wow. Oh. There's nothing that it, 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 it's probably those most high opening moment is when you realize that all this time, everyone was just looking at you saying, won't you just fucking take care of yourself? You know, like we're here, you know, like we're here, you know? Yeah. It's, it's really weird. You know, like my father actually, I'm, I'm, I'm going to remember that sentence for the rest of my life. I was in psychosis. I had lost a screwdriver, Liz. Can you fucking believe it? You know, so uh, I was in full psychosis about 30 minutes from his house. And he said, can you just drive, safely drive back home? And he said that meaning his home. Mm. So I drove back there. He didn't even wait for me to get out of the car, sat next to me. And he actually just said, wouldn't you just help yourself? Mm. That's it. He didn't know about addiction. He didn't know about anything. Mm. But all he said is, wouldn't you just help yourself? And I, I collapsed. Started fucking crying, weeping, whatever it is, dad, please, whatever it is. And it happened that, you know, like he had, he had been told by my, my ex, my, you know, my, my girlfriend at the time that, um, She, she would leave me if it wasn't for me going in therapy, but whatever. Um, but he, so he had the, like the phone number of a few places. Mm. Um, but it's, it, it actually really is, you know, like some are naive, you know, like my mom didn't know that I had a problem, but my father would once in a while just like visit me. He was really close to my house and he would just visit me and ask some probing question, but nothing that was too invasive, but you know, like, you know, You still smoke? Yeah, yeah, okay. <laughs> How much do you smoke? You know, like, well, you know, I would caught in a quarter and say, well, well, a fourth of, you know, like whatever. Okay. You're going okay, doing okay? Yeah, sure, sure. Everything's perfect, you know, as any addict. Um, and he would leave. And then that would sit in me and just fucking almost makes me angry, you know, like, Fuck you, Dan. You're like asking me if I'm doing okay. <laughs> I dare you asking me that question. But um, and then you know, like when 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 you kneel to that sickness, um, you actually turn around and you know, there's just open arms of people saying about fucking time. You know, mm. like where were you all that time? You know, yeah. And it's it's actually the most. It's it's out of respecting how deadly is that sickness but it's up until because it's only up until the time you're realizing that you're killing yourself 
that there's something that someone can do. Until then, there's nothing. You know, your mom would have said, you know, like I'm driving down, down home because I'm, I'm pretty much guessing you're drinking too much. And, you know, you would say, fuck off. You know, like, don't. <laughs> yeah, it's like, well, don't bother. I'm fine. Thanks. Yeah. So you you did 28 days? I did 28 uh, days. We we had a family session. My brother turned up. My mum turned up. My brother was fucking furious with me. He said, you're so selfish. Honestly, you're so fucking selfish, you are. You're in a fucking treatment centre. <laughs> you know, mum's just lost her husband to 50 years and you have to be a fucking alcoholic just because you can't handle your drink. He was absolutely livid. Um, and this is the, you know, the brother I idolise. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I am. And I had to, you know, I had to accept that he was really angry and that I couldn't do anything about it at the time. My mum sat, sat in yeah. one of the family sessions where all the inmates had their family with them and we, it was like an hour and a half of group counselling. And we would all go around and say, hi, I'm Liz, I'm an alcoholic. And the family would introduce themselves. And my mum said, um, I'm her name. And um, Elizabeth isn't an alcoholic. Looking around the room at everybody, making eye contact, just to make sure that everybody realises that Elizabeth isn't an alcoholic. She said she's just grieving the loss of her father. We all are. <laughs> the inmates that I was in with just like rolling eyes going oh my god she doesn't know your stories she hasn't heard about this that the other that I'd shared with them confidentially and they were just like oh this is going to be fun Liz well done um, and it's it's uh it's I mean it makes the literature even truer to the to the to the words you know like only an alcoholic can understand another one. Yeah. It's, you know, like th there's, there's no other way. My mom did the same thing. So you'll never have a drink, right? No, mom, I shouldn't have another drink. <laughs> so you'll never even touch that or this or whatever. No, mom. I, no. So my father, you know, like, 14 years in now gets it mm. but my mom never got it ever so you you're, you're never gonna t no 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 <laughs> i won't <laughs> well ironically they do now get it yeah and i think the reason they now get it is because i've changed and remember i was talking about that hilarious brother of mine who's who used to let me plait his friend's hair yep um who was very angry with me even though he lived 20 20 minutes down the road and i hardly saw him because of his wife um and because i didn't want him to know what was going on with me um since i've stopped drinking and since i've taken responsibility for my part in my life and the decisions i've made and I've had a good hard look at myself. I've been able to repair that relationship. Yeah. To the point where 
three years three years sober our, our circumstances changed and I needed to we we moved house and I needed to stay with my brother and his wife three days a week so I could continue with this great job and he and his wife opened the doors to their home they gave me the keys and they were delighted to see me every single time I entered the house and they were sad to see me leave which was a miracle, bearing in mind I virtually had no relationship with my brother or his wife when I went into that treatment centre because I'd pushed them away. That's crazy. But 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 so so through to you know like the the how it goes, you know, like you everyone gets I mean most of the time, you know, like everyone gets more open minded. Um you become less of a fucking prima donna. You know, and uh, all of a sudden you become more human and mm. more approachable and more understanding and and so on. I have to ask you, Liz, um, how are you doing now? What's what's your you know, <laughs> uh, you know, like how are you doing? Well, today I'm sober, and that is the most important thing. Um, yep. Is counting the days. I remember someone telling me when I proudly I met them, and I said, "Oh, I'm 123 days sober," and she said. Who fucking raw? <laughs> I'm like, pardon, <laughs> you know, be nice to me. I'm quite new around these parts. She went, Liz, it doesn't matter how, how far away you are from your last drink. It's how close you are to your next one. Uh, and do you know what? I think that woman saying that to me has probably saved my life on more than one occasion. Because absolutely. I'm only ever an arm's length away from drink. Yep. Um, so I I don't count the days anymore because I don't need to. I have it on an app that is a recovery app that I read and it tells me the days and occasionally I look at it and go, oh my God, 2,000 something days, that's phenomenal. That's crazy, yeah. I remember the years because the month leading up to going into treatment were really sad emotionally. And, and you have to remember where you're from, right? Yeah, and it reminds me each summer where I'm, how I got to where I am today, and I'm enormously grateful for where I am today. And today I'm well. I'm a, a work in progress. I'm some days I'm not spiritually terribly well. Some days I'm not emotionally terribly well. But my worst day sober is better than my best day drinking yeah liz i have to each and every week that i do record i have to just thank uh, my guests you know like it, it, it for me it's just you know like a um french quebec canadian um nobody asking asking people for, you know, sitting down with me <laughs> across the sea and just sharing their story to my to my listeners. And for me, it's just, uh, it's, a, you know, it's a blessing. Um, it's pure, pure, pure blessing to have every one of my guests on. And, you know, you're, you're now part of the cold turkey family that shared and, you know, and gave your story out. Um, you told me you had a podcast. Where can we find you, Liz? Well, first of all, I'd like to say it's been an honor and a privilege being able to come on here and talk with you. And apologies for talking so much. 
Um, oh, oh. <laughs> funnily great. enough, when I stopped drinking, I started to talk again. Um, no <laughs> surprise there. Um, so like you, um, I have a podcast. It's called Today I Am Sober. It's in its infancy. It's primarily for women. And we talk about the joy that you can get out of life once you're sober. So I have all sorts of mad women on and men talking about all sorts of random subjects. And it's just a great conversation like today has been. Awesome. So what I'll do is that, you know, like you're, you're going to send me all the links to find you. Uh, I'll be sharing this on the on the podcast episode description. And uh, again, thank you for your time, Liz. It was a pleasure and uh, you know an honor to have you on. Thank you. Thank have you. a great day. Thank you. Bye bye.